once you've been in a war, you never stop serving. And for John McDaniel, his eternal duty will always be to help those who fought for this country's freedom. So I've had since 2006, you know, a great deal of personal contact with these heroes that, that suffer from PTSD, among other combat-related injuries. Through Wounded Warriors in Action, an organization he founded, McDaniel deals with the repercussions of war on a daily basis. It's a reality. I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I think anybody who goes into harm's way and, uh, you know, experiences the sort of war-related uh, activities, the, the horrors of war, and let's face it, you know, war is, uh, you know, it, it is uh, something that's, uh, you know, un unfortunate an unfortunate reality that, that, that our country has been experiencing, you know, since, the, since its inception. I think man's nature is to war. He says he has seen firsthand the burden of war and the stress that's induced by spending every day uncertain of your last. You know, it's a bit of an isolation. You know, they're, they're in, you know, they feel isolated. I mean, they, they were, these are young men that, uh, you know, what did they know? They, they, they knew their hometown uh, before they signed a piece of paper that said they were going to go join the Army or the Marine Corps. Um, they knew their family. They knew their close friends. And then they joined the Army or the Marine Corps, and they went off to boot camp, and they got to their unit, and they started to develop bonds, very strong bonds, and the bonds that they forge in combat are, are certainly stronger, I think, than any of the bonds they'd ever formed before with, with anybody. The bond a soldier creates with his troops is one that PTSD threatens, providing the most anxiety to those who deserve peace the most. So they've got this tremendous support group and peer group that uh, they've been in combat with, and, and those bonds are, are extremely strong, and I think it's a, it's a function of of the experience that they're having or have had. And then uh, all of a sudden something happens, they get wounded, and then they find themselves in a hospital, sometimes for two, three years, depending on the severity of their wounds, and uh, then they're discharged from the Army or discharged from the Marine Corps, and they're back home on the block. And the impact of isolation after the war is something McDaniel sees in PTSD the most. Not only the psychological aspects of what happened to them, uh, but the fact that they've been removed from a situation that they loved dearly, uh, and they've been separated from a peer group, and basically the, the only thing that they really knew and knew well is now gone. And, and I think that alone has some very significant impact psychologically. You know, it's like the number one thing I hear is I miss the Marine Corps or I miss my, my unit in the Army. For now, as the burden of post-traumatic stress disorder lingers, so will McDaniel's efforts. As he says that it is now his obligation to serve those who have lost their inner peace for American peace. It's, it's one of the unfortunate realities of, of, of war. And, uh, you know, it's been going on ever since Cain clubbed Abel. <laughs> you know, I don't mean to, 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 to sound, uh, you know, flippant about it, but, uh, you know, it, it's just the way it is. You know, you put men in these, these kind of circumstances and, and ask them to do the things that nobody else can do. The reason these, you know, infantrymen and, 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 and other combat arms folks are, are out there doing these things because they're the only folks on the planet that can for Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I am Luis Giraldo.
There are many reasons why someone chooses to serve their country. For Pat Corcoran, a 26-year veteran and a Purple Heart recipient, it felt as if it were his duty to serve. I guess one of our, uh, what, what really made the Army um, visible to me, and that was operations in Grenada in 1983, and, you know, just kind of the, kind of the going, uh, just the need to serve my country and defend our way of life. And uh, even that was two and a half decades ago. And I saw, you know, just some not so much extremism, but just the uh, just the dislike of other, you know, either cultures or ways of life uh, and oppressive situations that that I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to. Uh, defend our freedom, our way of life, and um, I wanted to be an airborne ranger. And that's what he did. He served. He served until he became a sergeant major for the U.S. Army and lived through a day that happened much too often in the war in Afghanistan. In August of 2009, I was, uh, I was on a patrol um, to go to uh, one of our bases, and, uh, and my my convoy was struck with a uh, with an IED. My vehicle was hit with a IED uh, or roadside bomb pretty much directly under the vehicle, which uh, it left me uh, trapped and my driver trapped in the vehicle, uh, both of us with broken legs, other multiple broken bones and various injuries and and uh, left me in a coma and facing nearly a year in the hospital and a uh, spinal cord injury resulting in paralysis in my legs. And although he's quick to acknowledge the burden of his injury, he's faster at recognizing he wouldn't have gotten through it without the country and family he served. We have over 100,000 wounded warriors, and I'm thankful um, that we've gotten that good at uh, treating people medically and evacuating them off the battlefield and stuff that there's that many people that live from catastrophic events and horrific injuries. Uh, it's unfortunate that this is how we had to figure it out. Um, but, you know, uh, physically, um, I still challenge to do, you know, most of the same things that I did uh, before I was injured. Um, I have uh, you know, great family, a teenage son and a uh, four-year-old son, and and uh, and they expect 100%, um, you know, fathership out of their dad every day. So that's what I try to give them, um, and continue to drive on with that. So you know, with the with the uh, help of a lot of medical breakthrough um, and technology and uh, innovation and uh, just being creative, uh, I continue to do uh, as many things as I can possibly do uh, like that. You know, physically, there's it's a challenge because in a uh, split second, I went, you know, and then a year of hospitalization, I went from being capable of doing one thing to being, or some things, uh, to uh, just a change in my physical capabilities overall. Uh, but I still remain the same person. This is just the tip of the iceberg, however, because wounds aren't just defined by blood and gashes, but by the scars that lie deep within them. Uh, I started looking at people, seeing how they 
react to their injuries and knowing that, you know, like the entire crew in their vehicle was killed uh, and they survived or the entire crew in their helicopter uh, was killed in action and, and maybe they survived and think to myself, well, that's a horrible traumatic event. And uh, afterwards they must be um, horribly depressed. And I've seen that. I've seen each of those incidents that I just described, uh, and I've seen people affected uh, in an anxious and depressive way afterwards. And, uh, and I don't think that I was any different. I mean, I spent months in the hospital trying to figure out, um, you know, put all the pieces back together and uh, very depressed. Luckily, I had my uh, family close by my side to help keep me upbeat and motivated. And But it's depressive to look down at your toes and not feel them or move them uh, or your legs. And uh, and then uh, just to add to it, doctors that visit you on a regular basis and tell you about another part of you that's going to have to be removed or et cetera uh, in order to further your recovery and ultimately save your life. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I am Luis Giraldo. When you experience war, it just changes who you are. And um, um, sometimes you've just had too much. And um, uh, you vent, if you will. Scott Camille, who received two Purple Hearts for his work in Vietnam and is now the president of the Gainesville chapter of Veterans for Peace, knows war well. Once you, you have a um, system, of a, a legitimate system of using organized murder to resolve your problems, which is what war is, it's just organized murder, and so the conflict resolution skills that our country uses is, is force, is murder. And, w and when people grow up um, learning that we're all brothers and sisters, and then they go in the service and they have to kill other human beings and see their friends killed, it changes them. A change called post-traumatic stress disorder, something that during Camille's time in the military didn't even have a name. During the Vietnam War era, post-traumatic stress disorder was not recognized. It didn't get recognized officially, I think, until 1981. Today, it's recognized, so so they have counseling before they go over, is what I've been told. Um, I've not experienced it because I don't really know. Um, and, and they have counseling when they come back. But I understand that the multiple tours um, um, compound the PTSD a lot. And I know, I know for a fact, because I've talked to a lot of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. To him, PTSD hits as thinking through any war begins to change. When you join the service, you, you join the service because you want to, um, your, your father did it before you, or, or, or um, you want people to be proud of you, you want to win medals, or, or maybe it's sort of like an economic draft and there's no jobs out there. Um, uh, or you might believe that there's a war going on that you support and you want to go there and you want to fight those guys because they deserve for you to go there and kick their butts. But the first time you lose a friend, uh, um, either to see a friend killed or see a friend crippled. Um, f 
from that point on, it doesn't, and I think it, Civil War, World War II, World War I, Vietnam, I think all wars are the same. From, from that point on, it becomes about survival. Um, and you don't want to die, you don't want to be crippled, and you don't want any of your friends to, to die or be crippled. And it's about protecting each other. And that's what you're really fighting about um, um, uh, w when you're there. This new mindset, Camille says, is an irony within a non-changing structure to an always developing and changing environment. You can't be a diplomat when your life's on the line. Maybe, maybe they say you're supposed to be able to, but when people are trying to kill you and people are trying to kill your buddy, you're going to be paying attention, you know, and, and you're not going to be taking shortcuts. You're going to be t paying attention, and if you sense there's a threat, you're going to take it out, you know, and if, and if you think there's a threat that's not been dealt with, uh, um, you're going to do something about it. Camille says this survival mode is the root of the oxymoron of war. Um, I've been in, in war where I have killed civilians. And at the time that I did it, I felt justified. And, and when you think about this idea, rules of war, have you ever heard of anything more absurd than this idea of rules of war? When you have rules, that means there's a way of enforcing them. There's a system. So um, if you are able to have a, a set of rules and a system and people are willing to obey those rules, why wouldn't the first rule be we're not allowed to kill each other to solve our problems? To, to say that we're allowed to murder each other to solve our problems, but we're going to have rules on how you're allowed to kill each other and how you're not allowed to kill each other is kind of absurd. As things are now, Camille knows there is a way for soldiers to get through a burden only they can explain. I think a lot depends upon whether you have um, strong family support, whether you have um, uh, uh, economic means to be able to, when you're in the service, everything's paid for. And now all of a sudden you have to pay your rent, your electric, your gas, your insurance, your medical, um, um, whether you have the means to do that. Those are all kinds of factors um, that decide how well you're going to cope. So if you get out of the service, you put right on the street, uh, you don't have a job, you don't know how you're going to pay for things, um, you're going to really have a hard time. And, and, and that PTSD is not going to be helpful. Where if, if you have a job waiting for you, uh, uh, you have a family to support you who knows you've been through hard times and they're understanding and they're caring, um, you're going to be able to do better. As he waits for a change, Camille recalls the happiness that civilian life meant to him after only worrying about staying alive. Well, for me, it meant um, ice cream and hamburgers, um, <laughs> uh, somebody warm in my bed at night, um, um, not getting shot at. Um, um, one of the things, um, like when people talk about bravery in Vietnam and, and bravery in war, like, every day we walked through the woods, and every day people stepped on things and blew up. And, and so every step could be your last step. And that's and, and a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, and, and just knowing that you can walk across the street without having to worry about blowing up um, um, is really, um, really nice. And that's perhaps the biggest irony of them all. The fact that such a positive, simple mindset can at least help relieve the most turbulent of thoughts. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I am Luis Giraldo.
Corporal Dwayne Dewey from Cross Creek and Lance Corporal Brian Busing from Cedar Key have a lot in common. They both served for the United States Marine Corps very young. Dewey served as a gunner in the Korean War and Busing as a mortarman in Operation Iraqi Freedom. To this day, they're both loved by many who swear by their good nature and their ability to always do good deeds. While in action, they both also took some hits to save others, but the outcomes of their valiant efforts are perhaps the only differences in both men's tales, since only one left combat alive. It was terribly cold, cold. When you're out there standing and watching at 20, 25 below zero, that's cold. And we were dressed better than they were the first winter. See, I was there the second winter. Okay, we had the Mickey Mouse boots, we had more clothing, better clothing. Dwayne Dewey arrived in Korea on the 1st of October, 1951, just days before his wife Bertha gave birth to their first child. Two hours on, two hours off. Okay, you stand on two hours, you crawl in your sleeping bag with everything you got on, and take your rifle with you. Two hours later, they're getting you out of your sleeping bag to get your blood circulating again. Because that first winter, quite a few of them froze to death in their sleeping bag. And a lot of them, that first winter, when they took their socks off, their toes come off with their socks. Two weeks before he was scheduled to return home, Chinese forces attacked his squad. I just got back to my position <clears throat> when a grenade went off behind my left heel and uh, got me uh, two places in the left leg and left hip shrapnel. So, of course, that put me down, and this Navy corpsman, which is the Marine Corps medics, he rode in next to me. So now he's trying to get my breeches undone to tend my wounds. And anyway, as he started getting my breeches undone, the second road grenade rode in next to me. And so I grabbed it, and the first impulse was to get rid of it. But I don't think I can get it out of reach of my own men. So... I scooped it under me, I grabbed him, pulled him down on top of me, and the grenade went off. And then, of course, my next words were, get me the hell out of here. As he was flown for medical attention, he doesn't remember much about how he felt. Instead, he remembers all about his troop mate, Johnson. But I don't remember him putting me in there. I remember being in there and him taking his T-shirt off because he was out of bandages and watered it up and told me to hold it on that hole in my hip. On my right hip is where I scooped a grenade. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> I did. And then they brought in my first armor carrier, yeah. who died the next day in a field hospital. And then they brought in my second armor carrier, and I moved over on my ledge, and they put him on there with me, and I had my arm around him so he wouldn't fall off the ledge. And anyway, he took nine or ten bullets down across the chest from a burp gun and lived. Once he arrived home, he remained hospitalized for four months. He was no longer able to serve. Almost a year after his attack, President Dwight Eisenhower presented Dewey with the highest recognition servicemen can receive, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Well, it was me and my whole family. My mother, my dad, my sister, and Bertha in the president's office. And when one of his aides read the citation, he looked at me and he says, you must have a body of steel. And then he said, well, it's a good thing it was their grenades and not ours. 
but Dewey, who's forever thankful for the recognition, says this award goes to the wrong people. I'm very fortunate to be here. And because I got decorated with the Medal of Honor from President Eisenhower, they call me a hero. I'm not a hero. I'm just another, I'm a very fortunate veteran because I made it back. The heroes are still over there. They give the ultimate price. At this year's Veterans Day services in Kanapaha Park, Dewey was recognized for his Congressional Medal of Honor. His name is even engraved in marble on a special memorial. To him, these acknowledgments are nice, but the biggest award has been his life. I love life because I about lost it, didn't I? I thought I was a dead duck. All three of us, I thought the three of us laying in that bunker would never get out of there. We were either going to bleed to death or some Chinaman is going to stick his head in there and finish us off anyway, because they don't take wounded prisoners. Anyway, so I knew we were dead. Even said, I even prayed to God, huh? Not for myself, but for my wife and my child that I hadn't seen. That she would get a good husband for that child, huh? And for her. That's what I prayed for. And God sent me home. Twenty-year-old Brian Busing from Cedar Key wasn't as lucky. His grandpa served in the Korean War just like Dwayne Dewey, and his father had served in Vietnam. It's been ten years since Bill Busing from Port Ritchie lost his son, and not one second goes by without Brian lingering in his mind. They ran into a very bad battle in An Nazaria. Uh, it's a little, it's a city in lower of Iraq, lower part of Iraq. They ran into a buzzsaw. They ran into a Fedayeen terrorist, basically, and some some Iraqi soldiers. But there was their unit was split up in the middle of a city, and they fought for six hours. Three and a half hours into the battle, Brian was killed by a mortar while they were trying to hold three bridges on the north side of the city, uh, keeping the other units from the enemy units from crossing the bridges. Sixteen guys in the squad. Four of them came back critically wounded. The rest were killed in action. Busing enlisted for the Corps before he was 18. Well, he calls me on uh, his senior year and tells me he's going to join the, the early program to get into the Marine Corps. And I kind of three or four times called him back and saying, Brian, you sure you want me to do this? Because he was sending a recruiter to my home here to have me sign the paperwork because he was still in high school. And on the early program, both me and his mom had to sign him in. I said, OK, well. This recruiter was sitting at the table with me. I called three times. I said, Brian, you don't, you don't need to do this. Well, I want to go in the Marine Corps because you did it and Pop did it, and that's what I want to do. Before his death, Brian's family received one last letter. It was eight pages long and began with a simple, Hey, y'all. In it, he described his experience, how he had just received his vaccines. At one point, he writes, Hopefully, we're back before August don't want to turn 21 in Iraq, your son in the sandbox, Brian. The it, it showers right in the middle of the road, completely split open. And that was, that was the third track that I saw that was burning or, or destroyed. I see gear all over the place. I see flag jackets 
burnt part of the Charlie Company 1st Battalion, 2nd Marine Division. On March 23, 2003, he was hit by a mortar while he and his members tried to contain a northern bridge in Nasiraya. A History Channel documentary titled Shootout, Iraq's Ambush Alley, depicts what happened to the Charlie Company on that day. Brian Busing was part of what they called the most horrific tragedy in the history of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yeah. Anger at the same time. Senior leaders do their best to comfort the grieving young men around them. Busing's first lieutenant, James Reed, participated in the Ambush Alley documentary and in a series of interviews that were later published in a book by the same name. In it, he recounts Busing's final moments. This is an excerpt from the book. Reed didn't know what to do. Do I take my pistol out and shoot him? Bill Busing still remembers his son's burial in Cedar Key. He says the hardest part was hearing taps. Ugh, I break down. I, cry, I still cry every time I hear that. Used to never matter to me when I was in service. Taps was that, and that's just something to keep you awake. Now, I remember being at his gravesite here in Taps, and I broke down and cried. It just the tears just flew right out of my face. I just couldn't stand it. You know, just looking at the other Marines around me crying in uniform, and it just it, it tears you up because it brings back the note that you know that was final. That's final, and it's not good. I mean, he's not gonna, you're not going to see him anymore. So that's, that's what TAPS means to me. It's very final. Every year when Bill Busing updates his son's obituary in the newspaper, he signs it the same way his son addressed mail to him. And it's the way he wants to remember Brian always. You weren't able to be there with him when it was going on. You wanted to help him, and you couldn't help him. He's gone. As a Marine, I was his buddy. He considered me his friend. Like, if we used to write letters back and forth, he'd, he'd tell you, from your son, from your fellow Marine, and from your best friend. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I am Luis Giraldo.